Hello and welcome to the Oakland Institute podcast. As a leading policy think tank, the Oakland Institute is bringing fresh ideas and bold action to the most pressing social, economic, and environmental issues of our time. In partnership with impacted communities, we research and document threats to land rights, livelihoods, and natural resources, and develop communications and advocacy campaigns to support and elevate these struggles in the international arena. On this show, we will summarize our research and advocacy efforts through interviews with report authors and partners from communities around the world. Underlying all the work of the Oakland Institute is our strong commitment to elevate the voices of farmers, pastoralists, fisher folk, indigenous peoples, and all communities who are marginalized and repressed in the name of development. After all, the poor are the experts on poverty, the oppressed are the experts on human rights, and peasants and rural communities are the experts on agricultural development. My name is Andy Currier. I'm a research associate at the Oakland Institute and will be today's host. The island nation of Papua New Guinea will be the subject of today's episode. One of the most culturally diverse countries in the world, PNG has over 800 indigenous languages. With a heavily rural population, Papua New Guineans have been able to maintain traditional lifestyles based on a mix of cash crops and subsistence agriculture, hunting, fishing, and gathering. The majority live in small communities of a few hundred villagers who maintain close relationship with the land and natural resources. PNG is home to the world's third largest rainforest and numerous endangered plants and wildlife species. However, despite an abundance of natural resource wealth, PNG's economic and social development has failed to match people's aspirations and government promises since independence in 1975. This can, in large part, be attributed to the development path that successive governments have pursued. Rather than a people-centered approach, PNG has pinned its development plans on large-scale resource extraction. In pursuit of this goal, PNG has allowed some of the world's largest mining, petroleum, and timber companies onto its shores to extract gold, silver, copper, nickel, oil, natural gas, tropical hardwoods, and palm oil. Today, we're going to explore why PNG's natural resource wealth hasn't led to greater development for its people. I'm joined now by Frederick Mousseau, policy director at the Oakland Institute and author of several reports that have exposed illegal logging, tax evasion, and efforts to privatize customary land in PNG. We're going to discuss the findings of From Extraction to Inclusion, the recent joint publication from ACT Now, the Jubilee Australia Research Center, and the Oakland Institute that calls for a radical policy shift away from the failed natural resource extraction strategy and towards an approach focused on people-centered development. So thank you for taking the time, Frederick. Uh, Before we get into the findings of the report, I wanted to backtrack a little bit. Uh, For some of our listeners, PNG might not be a country that's really on their radar, given the lack of international news coverage. Despite its smaller population, the country has been the subject of numerous Oakland Institute reports. I wanted to start uh, by first hearing how the Oakland Institute first became involved in PNG, and then some of the first impressions you had when visiting the country. Sure. Thank you, Andy. The, we, we became first involved in 2012 after receiving calls from local communities in PNG that um, there were massive projects of logging and palm oil that were underway to some 5.5 million hectares earmarked for such projects. So we, we decided to go and, and see what the Institute could do about it, and we, we ended up making a, a film and the first report that was documenting this massive land grab that was taking place in the country. It was, um, it was really distressing to, to visit communities at the time because the local populations who were so attached to, to their land and natural environments were feeling really 
awareness with these companies, but also uh, the government, the police forces, all against uh, them to just to, to, to let these logging companies go through their land and take away their most valuable resources. And, and Papua New Guinea is, is an incredible country where people are, 97% of the, of the country is customary land. People really live with their forest, live from their forest and the, and the, the rivers and waterways. There's small scale agriculture, but the, the, the attachment to these natural resources is something you, you don't see in many places in the world. And, and so their struggle for their, for their resources and their land was so important. It was really, you, you could really feel it was a struggle for their life. Before the onset of the pandemic, uh, PNG had been experiencing consistent economic growth. The report, however, is critical of this development path taken by successive governments. So what is wrong with looking at something like GDP and concluding that the natural resource extraction approach has actually been successful? Uh, economic growth is, is most often measured with uh, this gross domestic product, GDP, which is the monetary value of all the goods and services produced in, a, in the formal economy. Over, However, GDP does not measure human development and well-being. It doesn't account for the negative external cost of economic activity like environmental damage or social unrest or, or, or kind of uh, negative externalities on the economy. And it does not show how wealth is distributed either. GDP doesn't tell us much about living standards for most people in PNG, but other measures are, are much more revealing. PNG is, for instance, among the lowest of its Pacific neighbors in its poverty rates, in its position on the Human Development Index, in its rates of access to healthcare, its rates of child mortality, access to basic services such as clean water, electricity, health services are very low as well, and child malnutrition is uh, rife throughout the country. Well, there have been some improvements in uh, recent years, for instance, life expectancy has increased, uh, such as uh, access to education as well. Uh, these are really small gains in light of PNG's falling in so many other areas of human development. So it is crucial that we push back on this conception promoted by governments and international institutions that DG GDP growth is equated with development. It, it is not. As PNG demonstrates, economic growth does not necessarily benefit the majority of the people. And we see this made explicitly clear by the communities who have lost their land and failed to see any improvement in their quality of life from the massive natural resource extraction project that have been uh, surrounding them for decades now. So could you break down how relying on the natural resource extraction approach constrains PNG's development? According to the report, the mining and petroleum sectors currently account for around 85% of the value of exports from PNG. This is a major percentage, and it must generate considerable revenue. Is this just an issue of the government misusing these revenues? Well, it, it is striking that uh, natural resource extraction makes actually a, a relatively modest contribution to PNG's national budget. Most of the revenue and profits from natural resource extraction in the country are banked offshore. Between 1978 and 2016, the extractive sector takes, have averaged just 13% of PNG's total revenues, 
which is relatively low considering the high percentage of export they account for. So this is corporations finding ways around paying a fair share in taxes? Yes, and, uh, and it's well documented. We've looked into this in a, in a report we produced in 2016 titled the, the Great Timber Heist on the logging industry in Papua New Guinea. Our investigation exposed massive tax evasion and financial misreporting by foreign logging companies. We, we saw, uh, looking into the, the, the financial records, that they were not paying hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. Actually, they were, they were year after year reporting losses in their activities, even if they, if they kept exporting and growing their exports year after year. And it has continued since. And uh, still now, even after a couple of years ago, the, the country became the first exporter of tropical timber. These companies were still reporting losses, economic losses, no profit in their activities, which, which was uh, uh, very striking evidence of their, their misreporting and uh, tax evasion practices. So this is costing the economy hundreds of millions of dollars every year. In recent years, um, the good news is that as a result of this research, the PNG government has really tried to, to take action on, on this tax evasion by logging companies. And uh, it has increased its log export tax, which is a percentage of uh, tax the government takes on the, on the export, on the volume of exports. And this has led to a sensible decrease in timber exports as well as an increase in government revenues. The government has also, as a result of these of this findings, the government also uh, sought international assistance to deal with a problem, which is a very difficult problem because we have these foreign companies having tax havens, having all kinds of complex setup for their, for their groups. So the government asked the assistance of the OECD, who agreed to send international auditors to PNG to help the government crack down on tax evasion. And this happened last year. Uh, and the, the, the latest, uh, the 2019 PNG, uh, PNG budget also included additional measures to, uh, to, to put more taxes on these so-called resource companies to address the issue raised in our report. So we were really glad to see uh, a direct impact of our, of our report over the, the government uh, attitude towards these logging companies and its, uh, its attempts to, uh, to, to curb tax evasion and to increase public revenue from these activities. That's an important point that is often overlooked. So rather than the government misusing this revenue, the structure of these deals actually results in less revenue than you would expect to see given the value of the resources extracted. And then when you add tax evasion to this, it becomes clear why development hasn't followed. It is heartening though to hear that the reports have led to some action cracking down on tax evasion. It's especially crucial as the government remains committed to attracting more private investment as its primary development strategy. So what types of private investment could actually contribute to development? What does this look like in your opinion? Yeah, of course, we, we are not saying there should not be any investment. There should be investment that, that really benefits the country and its people. And um, what we have seen in recent decades is that logging and mining have a devastating human and environmental impact on, on the country. 
we have seen also there are very obvious alternatives to these extractive activities. For instance, uh, establishing in-country processing of wood rather than allowing most of the timber to be exported as a raw log. Basically, it's just cut the timber and put it in a, in a boat that is uh, going to China or somewhere else, mostly to China, actually. Uh, there can be investment in this processing in the country uh, so that the, there is domestic production and an added value to these uh, natural resources. There are other ways to, to invest, investing in domestic trade, storage, transformation of agricultural and forest products is, uh, is a key avenue that the government should explore. We, we, can, we can think of uh, investment in high value export commodities such as cocoa and vanilla, which are big export crops for the country. And uh, crops that are produced by small farmers and don't require the uh, alienation of their land. Supporting trade between highlands and coastal areas, between rural areas and urban centers is also critical if one wants to avoid to see what we've seen in so many, so many countries around the world. Uh, like in, in Africa where rural peoples are impoverished, you see farmers who can't make a living, whereas the urban population largely buys and consumes products that are coming from uh, overseas. And quite often we see, uh, we see uh, junk food and food that is uh, new for the, for the country and the culture. So preventing this to happen requires private investment, which will have to be guided, supported and incentivized by the government, as well as some level of protection for the domestic markets from cheap imports of, of food. So these are really uh, measures, strategic directions that the government should take, even if uh, so-called donors and international uh, institutions will be uh, in all likelihood resistance to these kind of measures as they will be, uh, they will be as always advocating for free trade and no protection of borders. But in the case of Papua New Guinea, we can really uh, encourage the government to, to, to support its domestic production and its population, which is for 80% of it rural and relying on, uh, on agriculture and forest products for their, for their livelihood. If anyone is interested in learning more about these options, uh, the report takes a deep dive into the evidence behind their effectiveness. I encourage everyone to give it a close read uh, to learn more. So one thing about these alternative forms of investment that sticks out is that they don't require privatizing or changing ownership over land. Uh, despite these options, though, we've seen the PNG government continue to undertake a number of policies aimed at freeing up customary land to facilitate private investment in natural resource extraction. Can you first explain the importance of customary land in PNG and elaborate on how it's under attack? So the Papua New Guinea is a relatively, relatively new country as it, it got its independence from Australia in 1975. And in 1975, it, it was independent with a, a new constitution for the country, which really uh, uh, withheld customary land tenure as uh, a key principle for the country and as a key asset for the country. So uh, customary land tenure is a constitutional uh, principle for, for the country and it's, uh, it's quite unique in the world. 97% of the land today in Papua New Guinea is under customary land tenure, meaning that it is collectively held by clans, by tribes, and basically just no, 
what people say in Papua New Guinea is that there's no homeless in the country because it, everyone belongs to a clan or tribe and everyone is entitled to, to some land. So it's, um, uh, it, it's a notion that uh, may, may be very, uh, uh, very different for many of the, the listeners here in the US, for instance, where we see uh, so much homelessness and where private property of land is such a, an important principle. It's really a completely different vision and different relationship to land in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. The, uh, more generally, customary land tenure systems vary in different countries, and it, usually you, you have kinships groups recognizing and enforcing a system of land custodianship and usage rights, and ensure that they are passed on from generation to generation. So people don't consider land as an individual property that can be bought or sold, but instead value it as a common good. And it's an ancestral asset with deep social and cultural significance. There are secret sides, there are all kinds of uh, beliefs and attachments, cultural attachments and customs related to the, to the land and the forest. And all these have to be preserved for the, those living on the, on the land today and relying on this land for their livelihoods, but also for, for future generations. And this is something that people in PNG have strongly in mind, they have this, uh, this responsibility as custodians of their land. But pursuing development by extracting natural resources has put customary land under attack. Between 2003 and 2012, around 5.5 million hectares of customary land passed into the hands of uh, foreign corporations for, uh, for logging and pine oil through a scheme that was introduced by the government called Special Agricultural and Business Leases, ACBLs. So it's a legal mechanism known as a lease-lease-back system where, uh, where individuals can uh, lease some parts of their land to the government and then the government leases it back to a corporation who wants to, to, to develop certain activities on this land. So, with, uh, with this scheme in place, it's uh, some 12% of the total land area of the country that is, uh, that is under threat. And, uh, and it is more than that, it's uh, over 15% when you add it to looking concessions already uh, given in the country. So it's a, it's a major attack on the customary land tenure system, which has been uh, led by the government itself. So despite all the important reasons you just laid out, uh, there are people who push for changes to this system, arguing customary land should be unlocked for private enterprise. Proponents for this approach uh, argue that private titles offer more security for individuals, uh, allowing them to access credit and invest in their land as a catalyst for development. So this argument that you can increase tenure security with private titles and land markets, replacing customary tenure systems, and unlock the value of land for development holds considerable weight with international institu institutions such as the World Bank and development agencies from USAID to DFID. What are your issues with this argument? It is clear that land tenure security is vital. However, transforming customary land tenure into private titles is not necessarily the path to, to improve tenure security. There is much evidence from around the world, including comprehensive studies by USAID and the World Bank themselves, showing that customary systems can provide adequate tenure security and that past efforts to convert 
customary systems into a, a Western private title system can result in a major social and economic displacement. So it, it, is, it is not a solution we, we really buy in. And research around the, the world actually reveals that private titling has not increased access to credit and loans as it is uh, often the argument put forward by the, the promoters of, the, of this kind of reform. The often repeated claim that private titles offer tenure security while customary systems remain insecure is actually not substantiated by evidence. The lack of evidence of development outcomes associated with private titling, along with many examples of the detrimental impact on people and communities makes it clear that the privatization of land has nothing to do with fighting poverty or improving livelihoods. It is just another avenue for further colonization and exploitation of natural resources for the benefit of few private interests and corporations and for the loss of the people. This was a major takeaway from the report for me that rather than impeding development, protecting customary land can actually improve tenure security without some of the risks associated with land markets and private titles. For more on the push to privatize land around the world and the gap between research and practice on improving land tenure security, I'd recommend listeners take a look at the Driving Dispossession Report published by the Oakland Institute in July, which features PNG as well as several other case studies. Now, given the huge power imbalance between these large corporations and communities in PNG, how have people been resisting efforts to take their customary land? What form does this opposition take and, and does it make you optimistic for the country's future? Citizens and communities all over the country have confronted these SABLs and different land grabs efforts in a number of ways, including public protests, civil disobedience, petitions, pursuing court cases to have their land returned to them or stop the logging companies. So the, the resistance is, is massive. Uh, they, the people have been really standing in the way, but unfortunately this this resistance is also met with violence and intimidation. In a number of cases, residents who try to resist these land deals through peaceful protests or roadblocks or, or were arrested, beaten, relocated, or moved to, uh, moved to a jail far away in the provincial capital in a number of cases we've seen. Uh, actually, it, it's important to know that police on the logging site is actually hired by the loggers and is really working on their behalf to protect the, the logging operations. In, in my different, different visits to the country, I've been humbled by the, the courage of the people who are standing for their land and their natural resources, uh, facing their own police and these logging companies, foreign logging companies. Uh, and it is, um, it, it is really humbling because you, you, you have people with very little support and very little resources who put every, everything in, the, in their struggle for, because of the, the importance of the forest and biodiversity for, for their livelihoods, but also aware that this is, this is a fight for all of us. These this resources, this biodiversity are, are key to protect for, for them, for their life, but for, for the rest of the world as well. Uh, I, I encourage you really to read the report called uh, titled Taking on the Logging Pirates, Land Defenders in PNG Speak Out, which features testimonies will include a number of testimonies from, from these individuals who stand in the way of logging and corruption. And there are very poignant testimonies there from different islands we visited with uh, people explaining the, 
their struggle, but also their, their motivations in this struggle and the, and the kind of forces they are facing. So we spent most of the conversation exposing uh, the natural resource extraction strategy as a neocolonial trap that PNG has fallen into. While foreign companies have benefited, development for the majority of the population remains constrained. I wanted to end with the path forward. So from your research and years spent working with partners in PNG, what can the country do to provide people-centered development? It is really essential to preserve sustainable livelihoods and support a truly green economy that protects natural resources for future generations and is able to curb carbon emission and climate change. The government of PNG must focus on a development path that saves people instead of one that takes the land away for, for, from them for corporate profits. The country has important assets. It still has a largely rural population living on their own land with the skills and ability to work, produce, trade, and innovate in a way that will improve their lives and those of future generations. PNG's wealth of natural resources can continue to be the basis of people's livelihoods, provided these are managed by and for the people in a sustainable, responsible, and wise way. The, the change, of course, requires important policy shifts for the government. We should start by halting its attacks on uh, customer identity, which is the basis of the village economy and the livelihoods for most of the population. The next step is to reject new large-scale resource extraction projects at least until genuine reform of the governance regime is accomplished. In the, in the forestry sector, uh, as mentioned earlier, a ban on round log exports is urgently needed. It's actually something that has been promised by the government for decades and never implemented. We should just stop exporting round logs that don't benefit anyone, except these this logging companies and the few individuals connected to them. Uh, local communities must be, must be placed at the heart of future forest management. Downstream processing of sustainably and ethically produced timber products should be the priority for the country. Halting the expansion of old palm is another priority that must come with public policy and investment in appropriate agriculture that benefits farmers, feeds the country, and uses natural resources in a responsible way. There are there are hopeful signs that PNG policymakers have started now the necessary shift, but a much greater and coordinated government approach across all these sectors is required today if we want this, uh, these changes to happen. Thanks again, Frederick, for taking the time. Uh, again, for those interested, the report is called From Extraction to Inclusion, Changing the Development Path in Papua New Guinea, a joint publication of Act Now PNG, Jubilee Australia, and the Oakland Institute. All the reports referenced today can also be found on our website, oaklandinstitute.org. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.